You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. This is uh, the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. I'm a land surveyor and attorney at law, and we'll spend the next hour talking about land surveying and land surveyors. Your comments are always welcome. Um, comments and co- or questions uh, that you may have, you can send them to Jeff at AmericasWebRadio.com, and you can find, uh, find out more about me at my personal website, www.LucasAndCompany.com. Okay, um, this week, I think what we're going to do is we're going to discuss uh, Curtis Brown. Uh, he continues to come up um, as a point of discussion, and here uh, just this last week, uh, I was reminded of some things uh, that I thought I might address on the show this morning. Um, for those who might not know uh, who Curtis Brown is, is uh, he is the author of uh, Boundary Control and Legal Principles, the original author, and uh, the original author of Evidence and Procedures for Boundary Location, which those two books um, have become uh, basically the, um, the, the the pillars, I guess, of modern-day uh, surveying philosophy, uh, if you want to put it that way. There are other surveying books, but uh, Brown <coughs> came out with his books at a, at a point in time uh, in the late 1950s, early uh, 1960s, when uh, there wasn't uh, a, a lot available as far as uh, surveying education goes, and he went to the trouble of uh, putting those two books together, and uh, now they continue with his name on it, which is one of the issues I, I guess I wanted to discuss because I've been uh, I've been <coughs> accused of being overly uh, critical of Mr. Brown uh, and his works, but um, just to uh, I want to clarify a few of those things this morning, and we're going to have a discussion about um, a article he wrote in 1979, which I have referenced on many occasions, but have not taken the time to sort of go through that article and and look at some uh, interesting aspects of that. But uh, when I talk about when I have been critical of, of Brown, uh, and, and I have, uh, it's not... Mr. Brown, it's not Mr. Curtis M. Brown that I've been critical of. He was, I never met the man. I, I assume he was a very good person. From all I can tell, he was. Uh, Michael uh, Michael Palmieri, who you may remember came on this show, if, you, if you've been with us this long, uh, Michael Palmieri out of California uh, came on the show last April, and we had some discussion about, about Curtis Brown. Uh, and uh, Michael's book, The Kurt Brown Chronicles, which I highly re- recommend that uh, surveyors get a copy of and read. has some very interesting uh, things to say about Mr. Brown in there. But when I've been critical of Brown, maybe I haven't made it clear enough. I'm, I'm critical of, of Brown, the institution, uh, the, the books that, um, that continue to get uh, published and new editions made. Mr. Brown isn't even involved in these new editions. As a matter of fact, he passed away. Um, and I don't remember um, exactly when he passed away. Maybe it's 
well, it's not really all that relevant, but I think it was the late 70s or uh, or mid, mid-80s, mid uh, somewhere in the, in the mid-80s, I believe. I never met the man. <clears throat> I, don't, I haven't meant to be critical of Mr. Brown, the person, but uh, the writings, the writings are troublesome. Um, as we're as we're going to see, we're going to discuss uh, this morning, um, and and these and, and there are just some things uh, that continue in evidence and procedures and in, uh, boundary control and legal principles that are just flat out wrong, um, maybe uh, misleading, but um, cer- uh, certainly misleading, but you know possibly just flat out wrong, and I don't understand. I'm having a hard time understanding why that would be, uh, other than, um, but because these these things that are wrong, we're not going to get into all of them today. But these things that are wrong are are uh, have, have caused a lot of trouble. Have caused a lot of trouble not only for the surveying profession but for uh, private landowners as well. This whole the, the whole idea that the land surveyor is to simply go stake the client's deed. And um, and let the chips fall where they may, which, uh, as far as I can tell, originated with Mr. Brown. That was his philosophy. Uh, that's what he got out in his books, in his early writings. Uh, but the reason we're going to take a look at um, <clears throat> we're going to take a look at an article he wrote in 1979, and it's called um, "Land Surveyors' Liability to Unwritten Rights," uh, and in that. Uh, in 1979, he was he was changing his mind about this uh, state the deed mentality, um, but <clears throat> it's still in those publications today. And if if Mr. Brown were still around today, it would be uh, it would be my guess that he would uh, that he would have changed his position uh, on that. With my discussions. Uh, not only uh, relative to this 1979 article, but um, also with my discussions with uh, Mike, uh, Michael Palomari, uh, you know, he tells me that you know Mr. Brown was um, constantly changing uh, his his position on things as as he gained more knowledge, uh, studied more cases, and, uh, and his thinking started to turn around and <clears throat> so as far as Mr. <clears throat> excuse me as far as Mr. Brown goes um, probably a very he was probably a very lovely man from everything I know uh, about him um, I, I don't think that uh, I could say anything bad personally about him so that's that's not the point the point is um, these misconceptions what what I call uh, survey mythology continue to uh, exist in the land surveying profession uh, to this day. And we could go into a whole discussion as, as to how that uh, how that came about, but <clears throat> the quick discussion would be that uh, this uh, this stake the deed mentality, uh, the stake the deed philosophy, was not how surveying was practiced until uh, until Mr. Brown came along and advocated that position. If you look at uh, the writings of some earlier surveyors, uh, A.Z. Uh, Enos uh, out of Illinois, that wasn't his position. Hodgman out of, uh, back in the uh, uh, late uh, mid to late 1800s. Um, Hodgman, who was a practicing 
surveyor in Michigan in the mid to late 1800s. He, uh, he that was not his uh, position on, uh, or his philosophy of surveying. A.C. Mulford out of New York, um, again, mid to uh, late 1800s. Uh, he, he was a he was an arbitrator, uh, or excuse me, he was more uh, like a mediator, uh, solving um, solving people's problems, not just finding them. And then, if you can find um, some early writings of um, of Clark, Frank Emerson Clark. Uh, not the books that are out there today, but his earlier writings. Uh, he uh, did not advocate this uh, stake the deed mentality. <clears throat> what was happening uh, when Brown came out with his publications in the late 1950s, early 60s, is um, there were no great um, schools. There were there were a, a couple of schools here or there that taught surveying, usually as part of an engineering curriculum, but there no were no. Um, were no major schools uh, for uh, to, to go and get a degree in surveying, or as we call it today, geomatics, which includes a lot more than, than retracement surveying. There were no schools, so when he wrote his book, uh, and and it and it hit the uh, it, it it became published and hit the streets. Uh, there were two types of surveyors in the United States of America. There were uh, graduate civil engineers who were surveying for whatever reason, and uh, they would have had, you know, maybe they maybe they couldn't get an engineering project, or it was still in work. But you had graduate civil engineers uh, who were doing land surveying work, uh, the type that we talk about, boundary retracement uh, surveying, and uh, then there were just purely apprentice surveyors. And when Brown came out and said, well, in essence. Taking the deed is to, it's a math problem. You find a starting point, you find an azimuth, and then it's a math and measurement problem. Uh, so he turned. He turned. This was eagerly. Uh, this methodology was eagerly adopted by uh, those surveyors in the 1950s, from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s and 90s, uh, because uh, it was. It, it's a lot easier to find a starting point in an azimuth and simply uh, lay out the geometry from the deed. That's a lot easier than um, than doing a, a full-blown retracement uh, of, of existing property lines, uh, finding where they, they have become located on the ground. Retracement surveying is an evidentiary exercise. It's not, uh, it's not a mass stakeout uh, problem. Uh, it's an evidentiary exercise. So, uh, and if, as we know with the current pandemic, the bell curve, uh, that bell curve that they talk about or used to talk about on TV all the time is called the Law of Diffusion of Innovation. It's, uh, it was written by a guy, uh, it was developed by a guy by the name of, I've got his book, Everett Rogers. Uh, and it, uh, the, the, he uh, discovered that uh, all pandemics and all fads, fashion fads, and, and other uh, such events that just uh, that take off, they all follow a perfect bell curve. And so when uh, Brown came out and, uh, and said, well, you, we don't, all, all you got to do is, is 
stake out your client's deed and, and hide behind your client's deed, and that's that's surveying. Well, <clears throat> the, you got the early innovators came in and adopted uh, that uh, philosophy, and then you had your early adopters, and then you had your your uh, early majority, your late majority, and then uh, finally uh, your laggards at the very end of the of the sweep of the bell curve. And so that changed. That was a, that was what uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point, that's what he called the tipping point. Uh, uh, you get to a certain point in the bell curve, uh, you start from nothing, you get early innovators, you get up to the early adopters, and somewhere between 15 to 20%, 15 to 18%, there's uh, this thing called the chasm. And if you can, if you can jump the chasm, uh, with this, whatever it is you're doing, uh, a new practice model, um, uh, uh, an epidemic, if you can jump the chasm, then there's a tipping point and the entire bell curve uh, takes place. So um, that, I think, fun- and so the Brown, is, Brown is to be credited for this. He fundamentally, at least according to earlier writings of surveyors and, and how they were practicing, he fundamentally, single-handedly uh, fl- uh, uh, caused a tipping point that flipped the entire um, procedure uh, for modern-day uh, boundary surveying. And uh, so that that I'm a little critical of, but not Mr. Brown. I'm not critical of Mr. Brown uh, as a person. But uh, these ideas continue uh, in his publications uh, to this day. Um, and uh, okay, about one minute to break. Uh, so that gives me a little bit of time here. I'm just going to go over here and pull evidence and procedures for boundary location, sixth edition, off the shelf. And I want to read from page two. Page two, top of page two. In keeping with recent legal decisions, we have somewhat modified some of the terminology. For instance, seldom is the term property line or property boundary used. It is our belief that property rights, including property boundaries, are legal questions and as such are not addressed by land surveyors. Surveyors locate boundaries or land boundaries or deed lines. They do not and cannot locate property rights. Well, there's your problem. Uh, and when we come back uh, after the break, we'll, we'll dig into that a little deeper. You ready, Brett? You got it. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shop. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. Um, okay, right before the break, 
uh, I read something to you out of evidence and procedures, okay. and I'm going to six I'm going to read that again so that you can understand uh, what is going on as we go through Brown's 1979 article, Land Surveyor's Liability to Unwritten Rights. In keeping with recent legal decisions, we have somewhat modified the term, some of the terminology. For instance, seldom is the term property line or property boundary used. That's the only thing that happens in court when there's a boundary dispute. The only thing that matters is the ultimate issue in the case, and that is where the property line is between the uh, plaintiff and the defendant. So <clears throat> that's either misleading, uh, at best misleading, or uh, maybe at worst, uh, just an outright lie. Uh, it is our belief that property rights, including property boundaries, are legal questions. Well, we've done over that many times on this show. Uh, but generally speaking, the only legal question, the only time a legal question would come up in a boundary dispute case is if you're arguing adverse possession, which is what we're going to get into here today because of uh, this whole idea of unwritten rights. Um, our legal questions and such are not addressed by land surveyors. Land, all land surveyors have to address legal questions. Land, pedestrians walking down, lay people walking down the street or driving their cars on the roads have to make legal decisions uh, and answer legal questions. Surveyors locate boundaries or land boundaries or deed lines. There it is, deed lines. They do not and cannot locate property rights. And as we've discussed on many occasions, when you do a proper retracement, you've done nothing less than determine the limits of ownership. Not that you're saying who owns the property, because who owns the property is relatively uh, irrelevant, but... Um, uh, doing your job right as a retracing surveyor results in the location of the property lines on the ground. So let's get into his article here. I'm going to have to read some of this uh, so that you get the point that he's making. Within the United States during recent years, vast changes have occurred in the laws regulating social relationships. Of these changes, those regulating liability and those diminishing the rights of private parties to the use of their land are of the greatest interest to land surveyors. Surprisingly, during this time, very few changes have taken place in the laws pertaining to land location procedures as based upon a written uh, document. While new wrinkles have been added here and there, the basics are intact. Yes, um, uh, land titles are based on the written documents, but the written documents are not sacrosanct. Uh, the written documents, when, and in most cases, when there's a conflict between what's on the ground and what's uh, written into the uh, title documents, especially when we're talking about uh, the measurements from the title documents, it's the title documents that will yield to what's already on the ground. These are just fundamental principles of, of survey, fundamental uh, boundary location doctrines. Liability for land surveyors has changed dramatically in the past decade. The increased number of lawyers and inflation of the cost of land are cited for reasons for the problems. The move against professionals generally began in the 1960s when parties began to sue doctors for malpractice. This movement spread to lawyers, engineers, and now land surveyors. Today, if people in this country have a mania, it's surely, this is 1979 he's talking, it surely must be the desire to sue other people. Juries have been awarding such large claims that it is impossible to predict what the future will hold in cases against land surveyors. Well, it's not too impossible to, to predict because there's no money to sue, sue land surveyors. 
uh, in in many many cases. Uh, there's the, the title company. It, the location question isn't a legal question. Uh, the title companies insure the legal question. The legal question is what is your property that gets insured? Now, if somebody's trying to take title from you. Then uh, the insurance, if you have title insurance, then the insurance company is supposed to come in and defend your title. That's what the title insurance uh, contract is all about. <clears throat> One such defense against litigation is to be without money or worldly goods. No lawyer in his right mind would consider taking a, a, a case against you. Then this is one of the problems. A, a lot of surveyors doing um, doing retracement work and and messing around with people's property rights, their property boundaries are, are out there doing it without any insurance. And so even if you wanted to sue the surveyor, uh, the surveyor might not have anything uh, for you to gain. And it, it costs money to litigate. It costs money to litigate. So what usually happens in a boundary dispute case is the surveyor uh, working under this, um, this uh, philosophy of just simply staking the deed and, uh, and let the chips fall where they may, the, the parties end up suing each other because they want to get their land back or, or and the surveyor kind of becomes, even though uh, the surveyor may have started the lawsuit, the surveyor kind of becomes irrelevant to the discussion. So in many, many cases, surveyors don't even, uh, uh, who, who caused the problem, don't even get sued. After listening to land surveyors across the country tell me how rough it is to make a living, that might be one of the reasons for scarcity of suits against land surveyors. Okay, then he goes on to talk about the Madsen's book, Understanding Your Professional Liability as a Land Surveyor. Interesting book. I, I read that uh, several years ago. Officially, I am retired. However, I am often asked to appear in court, ca court cases. Being retired does not mean that you quit work. It merely means that you select what you want to do and when you do it. And here it is. Here it is. Here's the, the philosophy. In my earlier writings, I generally advocated that surveyors should locate land boundaries in accordance with a written deed. We're still reading that today. I just read it to you uh, out of Evidence and Procedures, 6th edition. We're still reading that in that book, which is a problem. It's not a, It's not Mr. Brown's problem, but it is a, it is a problem with the, the institution of Brown, these books. All conveyances based on unwritten rights, okay, and, and this is what we're going to get into. Uh, this whole, the whole title of this uh, article is Land Surveyor's Liability of Unwritten Rights. The rights are not unwritten, and this is a basic, fundamental problem with, uh, with Brown's thinking here, is we're not talking about things that are unwritten. They're, the rights are written. It's an interpretation issue, which we'll get into. It's an interpretation issue. The rights are written. Matter of fact, his prime case here is basically a junior-senior rights case. All conveyances based on unwritten rights should be referred to attorneys for resolution. The only thing the attorneys can do, they can't go out and survey the property. They can't give an opinion on the location of the property lines. Uh, using the boundary location doctrine, the only thing the attorneys can do is sue for adverse possession, because that's that is that is a legal fight. That is a, t a title fight, 
And uh, that is uh, that is the go-to for the attorneys in a boundary dispute case is adverse possession because they don't understand the location doctrines. All the, but they understand adverse possession. It's statutorily enacted in most cases. Um, and, and they understand that if they win the title fight, then they will uh, they will settle not only what the title to the property is, the legal question, but they will settle the location of the property on the ground, the factual uh, question uh, of location. Within recent years, there have been cases, and one in particular, and that's the case he's going to discuss, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, wherein surveyors have been held liable for failure to react to a change in ownership created by prolonged possession. The purpose of this paper is to re-examine what the surveyor should do in the event title has been altered by a legal transfer of title by prolonged possession. Well, that's... uh, See, Brown came to the point of believing that uh, title uh, will pass uh, with prolonged possession. And this is a a position, and I mentioned Ted Madsen uh, earlier. He had, a, he had another little book that a friend of mine sent me called The uh, Ultimate Zero-Sum Game. Uh, now, Madsen was also a believer that uh, once all of the elements of adverse possession were in place, the title automatically passes. And that's what Brown is basically saying here. He's seeing this as an unwritten transfer of title, which um, there basically can't be. That cannot happen in American, uh, in, in, uh, American jurisprudence. Uh, by and large, uh, the statute of limitations, uh, at, which is applicable in all states, the statute of limitations says you cannot transfer property without a written document to uh, to uh, memorialize the agreement. Uh, property cannot, under the statute of frauds, cannot be conveyed without a written document. And adverse possession is, therefore, a potential property line that will not be be, uh, that will not be um, come to fruition until you get your court decree. In most states, there are a couple of anomalies out there. Uh, one of them being Utah, where um, uh, and, and we'll, we can get into that here in a little bit, but not too deep. Uh, where it, it's, it appears that the, if uh, all the elements of adverse possession are in place, then. Um, uh, then uh, the title uh, actually passes, but by and large, that's not that's not true. Before delving into the question, it should be pointed out that there are two very different types of possession found by the surveyor. One is totally unrelated to original survey lines. The other is a possession, which represents where the original survey monuments were set. Let us suppose that an original surveyor set an original monument to mark a corner. Further, a fence was uh, erected at the time uh, the monument existed. Later, the monument material disappeared. Now, the fence is a monument to where the original monument was located. In this discussion, only possession unrelated to original monument lines and possession out of agreement with a written uh, deed uh, is being considered. So, oh, by the way, if you want to uh, get a copy of, uh, of this, uh, article, uh, you can go to my website at uh, com. click on the resources tab, uh, and there will, it's going to give you, um, uh, it's being reprinted with permission from uh, Michael Palomari, 
and you can see the diagrams uh, in the document uh, that uh, Brown is referring to uh, as well. So um, this is uh, this is sectionalized lands, and just for those who uh, don't uh, aren't familiar with sectionalized lands. Uh, that's uh, that's where the federal government went out and surveyed the great public domain uh, into one mile squares called sections. Okay, we're gonna we're coming up on a break, uh, and we'll be back uh, after these messages. And we're glad to have you listening to America's Web Radio on the America's Web Broadcast Network. And I want to remind everybody that uh, coming up the eleventh. Day after tomorrow, Wednesday, is Veterans Day. So if you have a veteran or you know a veteran or you just pass by one, be sure and tip your hat. Buy them a meal, do whatever. But uh, it will be Veterans Day, and the country needs to protect and observe and know our veterans. With that being said, too, you need to uh, know that uh, this show is being sponsored by Parker Davis Quick Stakes, and uh, we appreciate uh, Parker Davis and all that they do for the surveying industry. So get on board, order your markers, or order your Quick Stakes today. Call 1-800-438-0387 and order your Quick Stakes today. We'd appreciate it, and Parker Davis would, too. We'll be back with Jeff in, a, in just a moment. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e.com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today you're listening to america's web radio on the america's broadcast network.com thank you for listening welcome back folks um all right we're on um the Surveyor's Hour on uh, America's Web Radio, and today we're discussing uh, Curtis Brown's 1979 uh, article, Land Surveyor's Liability to Unwritten Rights. If you want a copy uh, to look at yourself, go to my website, www.lucasandcompany.com, and click on the Resources tab, and you will uh, you will see... Um, uh, this uh, this article um, land surveyors li- uh, liability to unwritten rights. All right, let's let's talk about his his uh, subject case here. Okay, um, what we're what we're discussing is uh, sectionalized lands, and we we covered this uh, case in um, that he's talking about here in uh, one of our newsletters. So I did a little additional research. Uh, we're talking about section six. In a certain township and range in California, um, Section Six is what we call a fractional section, or it's a short section, if you will. There's, uh, the sections are supposed to be 40, uh, uh, 80 chain square, or one mile squares, roughly speaking. This uh, particular section is uh, only about 49 uh, chains, uh, a little over half mile north to south. 
and uh, roughly 77 chains uh, east to west, so short. And uh, in keeping with what the government uh, rules were, uh, they uh, what they do is uh, these sections are broken down into quarters and then quarters of quarters. And so the rule for the GLO surveyors was to have as many complete breakdowns of the section as possible and put that on the plat. So as far as section six goes, uh, all of the shortage north to south was put in the uh, was put in the north half of the section. So that left the southeast quarter of section six. Um, to be a full 160 acres, a full quarter. Uh, the shortage east to west was shoved up against the west boundary, and uh, at 77 chains, that meant that uh, they would get a full 80 acre lot uh, at, in the uh, at, in, as the east half of the southwest quarter. And then there was a lot number two uh, that was roughly about 67 acres. So. Uh, the southwest quarter, here's the important issue, the southwest quarter, section 6, where the action takes place in this case, uh, according to the government plan, the east half of the southwest quarter is a full 80 acres, and then the west half of the southwest quarter would get whatever's left over, and that, in this case, is about 67 acres. So therein lies your problem. We don't have two 80-acre tracks. So... Uh, so uh, his surveyor, below is described a case wherein a surveyor located the client's land exactly in accordance with the client's deed, yet found himself in trouble because he failed to take into account the adjoiner's occupancy. The facts are as follows. Surveyor A was asked to survey the following land, the east half of the southwest quarter of Section 6, such, uh, such and such township and range in California, in accordance with the official government plan. So the the, in accordance with the official government plan, the uh, south, of the east half of the southwest quarter is a full 80 acres, and the, he had a, he has a sketch here. The official plan disclosed that said east half was a full uh, 80 acres, whereas the remaining southwest uh, southwest quarter was labeled as lot two was uh, roughly 67 acres. Using the rules given in the booklet, Restoration of Lost and Obliterated Corners and Subdivision of Sections, Bureau of Land Management, the surveyor did uh, correctly did correctly locate the east half. There was a little uh, excess which was properly d- divided among the parcels. Upon this point, the surveyor did everything exactly correct. He could not have defaulted. What happened next did create a problem. During the course of the survey, survey, Surveyor A observed a fence encroaching onto his client's lands by a little more than 13 acres, the difference between uh, 67 acres and 80 acres. At each end of the fence, a surveyor stake was found. In California, a surveyor must put his number on every property stake that he sets. And he was contacted. The other surveyor was contacted by Surveyor A. Uh, the adjoiner's deed reads as follows. The west half of the southwest quarter of section, uh, containing 80 acres. That was the deed of the adjoiners. The west half of the southwest quarter containing 80 acres. Now, if you look at the government plat, it's not the west half of the southwest quarter is only 67 acres. It's lot number two. It's not really an allocable part. It's, it's a lot. It's supposed to only have 67 acres. 
further facts were the dividing fence was old, more than the statute of limitations, 10 years. The adjoiner was occupying 80 acres. And at one time, one party uh, owned all of the southwest quarter and sold off the west half containing 80 acres first. This is critical. Uh, what, what he doesn't tell you, and I can explain, hopefully, where you can visualize it. In 1892, the government sold the southwest quarter of Section 6 to McKinnon. In 1905, McKinnon sold to Robert Thiel the west half of the southwest and the east half of the southwest, containing 160 acres, according to the official plat. All right, so um, both halves get, get called out in the conveyance from McKinnon to Thiel. Uh, one is the west half of the southwest, the other is the east half of the southwest, containing 160 acres. Obviously, neither McKinnon or Thiel ever bothered to look at the plat because the plat will tell you it's not 160 acres. It's 13 acres short. Then what happened next was Thiel sold the west half of the southwest quarter and the east half of the southwest quarter, according to the official plat. He sold in 1905, he sold the west half to Doyle, uh, the west half of the southwest containing 80 acres. Then in 1910, five years later, he sold to Cabot the east half of the southwest, according to the government plat, then to Johnson, and then Johnson to Butler in 1964. Um, so nobody goes onto the property uh, until about 1964. But in 1904, 1905, Doyle uh, bought the West Half, containing 80 acres, and he's been occupying the thing uh, ever since. The 80 acres, he put his fence up he, to tell all of the world. He, he had a surveyor come out, and we're going to tell all of the world where my boundary line is and the surveyor came out and measured 80 acres and Doyle went into possession and fenced his line. Then in somewhere around 1965, Murray and McCormick uh, surveyors came out with their client's deed which said the east half of the southwest according to the government plat and they looked at the government plat and said well this guy gets 80 acres so they jumped the fence and created a 13-acre overlap. Now, this this was considered by Brown uh, to be uh, unwritten means, uh, uh, the conveyance of 80 acres by uh, by unwritten means, the the acquisition of that 80 acre, the acquisition of the 13 acres um, uh, by unwritten means. But there was nothing at all unwritten about this. This is simply a junior senior rights issue. But see, here's here's another mistake that Brown made. He thinks that somehow the government plat, um, the government plat uh, has to be observed in a private conveyance of land. It it doesn't. That's a, that's a complete misunderstanding of uh, of the instructions, uh, the GLO and BLM instructions on the subdivision of uh, on the subdivision of sections. Uh, the plat, the the um, once that. West 80 acres got sold uh, out of a common grantor. The 13 acres went with it. It doesn't matter what the government plant says at that point in time. And, and this is this is one of uh, one of the problems that, uh, that Brown uh, never realized. 
During the course of the surveyor, he observed the uh, surveyor A observed the fence encroaching on his client's deed lines by a little more than thirteen acres. At each end of the oh, we already we already talked about that. Uh, on the theory that acreage was subordinate, and the client had a written deed to the east half, surveyor A monumented the deed as written. Um, acreage is not that, that is not a hard and fast rule. Uh, that acreage is uh, um, will be subordinate uh, in all cases. Um, the common grantor sold 80 acres to Doyle. Doyle went in possession. His deed says 80 acres. So that's going to be 1,320 feet, rough, roughly, uh, by um, 2640. That's what he was sold. He couldn't sell the same strip again a second time to the junior conveyance. He disclosed the fence line and wrote in the uh, gross area and wrote in the gross area, including the approximate 13 acres fenced by the adjoiner. <clears throat> the buyer purchased land based on the acreage figure per acre purchase price, and the title company insured title on the basis of the survey. We've we've gone over this before too. The title, um, maybe we have, maybe we haven't. I, I, I might have done this in a web, but I don't remember. But the title company then insured the Murray and McCormick survey, insured the overlapping 13 acres in favor of Butler, and then when Butler tried to go in and occupy his land, he got into a lawsuit with Doyle, and the title insurance company um, then uh, had to pay out because it was determined that uh, the fence line and the guy's deed, which everybody could read, he was he was sold eighty acres, so um, Doyle's deed was superior. His occupation was superior, uh, and the insurance title insurance company had to pay out on the policy and turned around and sued Murray and McCormick for the hundred thousand dollars that they had to shell out. That's what you. That's what happens when a title. When this, this that is one way that you can. Uh, actually get the title company to come in and fight over a boundary dispute uh, case is if um, is if they insure the survey. It's called survey coverage. Um, and that's exactly what, that's not what he says happened here, but that's exactly what happened. They insured the survey. That's that's akin to uh, Torin's title. They, the, in, in such a, when they removed the survey exception because Butler proffered a survey to get his title insurance property of uh, policy, he not only got title insurance, he also got location insurance based on the uh, Murray and McCormick survey, and then they, uh, in turn, um, got sued by the title company for um, indemnification on the hundred thousand dollars they had to shell out for the thirteen acre loss. Yeah, when the buyer tried to occupy the land, then they got into a lawsuit, a hundred thousand dollars. Um, the point to bring out is that the title company was acting as a third party. They did not pay the surveyor's original fee for the work. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, the land, under the insurance policy, the landowner proffered a survey, uh, a survey and got his title policy. Okay, we'll pick up uh, right there uh, after the break. 
Okay, and uh, need for all of you folks to get out a pen and paper, particularly if you're interested in estate sales. We've got a huge estate sale going on in Dawsonville, Georgia. That's North Georgia, November the 13th, 14th, and 15th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. You don't want to miss this amazing whole home estate sale. Get more information at, write this down, www.estatesales.net backslash Georgia backslash Dawsonville backslash 305-342-702-988. And this estate sale is being carried on by Elite Estate Sales, LLC. So, again, contact or look it up. It is huge. I guarantee everything from furniture to antiques, hundreds and hundreds, literally thousands of books. Uh, you got some audiovisual equipment that's professional, gardening items, um, memorabilia from... You know, they've got everything, CSA, flag, CSA, a lot of a lot of stuff. It is huge, folks. I know it very well. A lot of antiques, a lot of crystal, you name it, it's there. So mark it on your calendar, November the 13th, 14th, and 15th. That's this coming weekend, so be sure and make plans to go to Dawsonville, and uh, go to the website first and check it out, www.estatesales.net backslash Georgia backslash Dawsonville backslash 305-342-702988. It'll be worth your while if you're into estate sales. So with that being said, I want to remind everybody to call Parker Davis and order your quick stakes as things are booming and going to boom even more. Your business is going to be great the last part of this year and going into 2021. So we appreciate you listening. And right now, let's get back to Jeff and the case that he's working on. So, Jeff, it's all yours. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. All right. Welcome back, folks. We're going to wrap this up um, this week. Uh, we'll do something different next week. We're looking at uh, Curtis Brown's 1979 article, Land Surveyor's Liability to Unwritten Rights. You can download a copy of it at my website, www.lucasandcompany.com, under the resources tab. <clears throat> okay. Um. Oh, here we are. Sorry, I was reading ahead a little bit. The point to bring out is that the title company was acting as a third party. They did not uh, pay for the surveyor's uh, original fee for the work. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, He doesn't get into the details of this, but if, if you do a survey for someone like Butler, they probably did an ALTA survey. And this is the whole purpose of the ALTA survey is to remove the survey exception. The title company then uh, ensures not only Butler's title to the 13 acres, but also the location according to the survey. And that's more than likely why Murray and McCormick got sued. Uh, sued. 
as a matter of law, the surveyor is liable to third parties that have been damaged. This is the case where land surveyor correctly located the client's boundary lines in accordance with the uh, with the writings uh, with the uh, with the writings of the client. Yet was held liable for failure to recognize ownership rights of the adjoiner. The implications suggested by this case deserve further analysis. This this is wrong. Brown just got it wrong here. Uh, the surveyor did not correctly locate his, uh, his, the property in accordance with his client's deed. Junior, senior rights are, are involved here. And not only that, the occupied line, occu- occupation, as many courts have said, uh, is uh, evidence of, re- of written title. It's evidence of the correct title to the property, the correct location of the title lines. Uh, and the surveyor uh, ignored it. The title company ignored it. He showed the overlap on his survey. This this is a case where the surveyor shouldn't have been sued because uh, the title company had his survey. Had his survey. He showed the overlapping area. Um, but Brown uh, insists that he didn't uh, he didn't put a neon light on the uh, on the overlapping area, and uh, that's why um, that's why he was held liable. With the benefit of 2020 hindsight, let us look at the case and see what the surveyor could have done, if anything, to have avoided liability or at least reduced liability to some degree. Uh, the first question to explore, what did the client have in mind when he asked the surveyor to locate his boundaries? Was he asking the surveyor to locate his ownership or just the deed lines, as all surveyors should know? And this is the this is the crux of the problem. This is it. This is the issue. There is a vast difference between ownership and written deed rights. I wouldn't say a vast. The differences usually aren't vast. The the written deed is merely evidence of ownership, not proof of ownership. Title to land can be transferred by unwritten rights. Uh, no, it can't. By and large, no. Title to property cannot be transferred by unwritten rights. There's this little thing called the statute of uh, statute of frauds that says you cannot convey land through unwritten means, through unwritten uh, 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 but by unwritten means. He says uh, transferred by unwritten rights. No, it'd be by unwritten means. Uh, from my experience with clients, very few know that there's a difference between the two. Most clients want to know what they own. Yes, exactly. That is exactly what they want to know. What do I own? What do I own? They want a surveyor to come out and give an opinion on what they own. The courts will probably find, if, if, if the surveyor doesn't make it clear, he's not, uh, I'm, not, I'm not surveying your ownership. I'm just taking out your deed. The courts will probably find that the surveyor contracted to locate the lines of ownership and to hold that the client is entitled to rely on that standard of duty by the surveyor. That is the whole purpose of doing of doing a retracement survey is to find where the uh, the property boundary lines, no matter what evidence and procedures says to find where the property boundary lines are located on the ground. That's the only thing that matters. That is the only thing that will matter when this thing goes to court. Within the United States, in most areas, the first right to land must be acquired via a writing, however defective. 
after the written title is obtained, except in Torrance title areas, imperfections in the writings can be corrected by long possession of the land uh, of the land area and can be enlarged or diminished by acts of adjoining land. Uh, yeah, he's he's on the verge here. He's on the edge of the boundary established uh, boundary location doctrines, uh, but he, he doesn't he doesn't recognize that's where the step needs to be taken. Written title alone is not the only consideration uh, in determining who owns property. Actual physical possession of the land can result in uh, the passing of title. No, actual written, uh, actual possession can be the identifying marker of where the property lines are located. In order of importance, elements of uh, elements to determining uh, determining who has ownership of land, a legally consummated unwritten right ranks higher than a written title. Okay, he's, he's just wrong there. The second question to explain, can the surveyor monument lines of ownership obtained by unwritten means? To my knowledge, absolutely nothing in the law prevents him from doing so. Clearly, from my conversations with attorneys, this is not the unauthorized practice of the law. If the surveyor chooses to claim that a possessory right is ripened into a fee title, he is certainly privileged to do so. The real question is, what should he do? The third question to explore, whenever a surveyor finds possession out of agreement with written title and he determines that title has or probably has passed due to unwritten conveyance, what are his obligations and what should he do? See, the article um, just added confusion to what, what was already uh, a, in 1979 and the 80s and the 90s, what was uh, already uh, a chaotic practice of land surveying. This just adds confusion. And, and what takes the confusion away are the boundary location doctrines. That's what they're there for. And uh, all of them, except for one, adverse possession, are pure factual questions. There's no legal question here at all. And let me just, we've read these off before, but in, in light of what we're, what we're hearing here from Mr. Brown, let's just, let's just go through Adverse possession, that is both a title, a legal question, a title, doctrine, and it is a location doctrine. And as I said, that's the first go-to for the uh, for the attorney in a boundary dispute case. They're going to go to adverse possession because they know if they, win, if they win that argument, they will not only settle what the title of the property is, they will also settle the location. Common grantor doctrine. When the common grant, that's just purely location, when the common grantor causes the land to be subdivided, um, then the monuments that uh, were put in the ground at, at the subdivision um, determine the location question, determine the location question. Doctrine of monuments, it's almost the same thing as common grantor doctrine. It's a pure location issue. Original surveyor following surveyor, location issue. Lines actually run on the ground. Location issue, acquiescence. It's a location issue. Oral agreement. It's a location issue. Pra uh, practical location. It's a location issue. Repose, estoppel, junior, senior conveyances. Those are all location doctrines. They answer the location question. When? When do they answer that question? When the deed is clear and unambiguous, and there are no ambiguities on the ground? No. It answers the location question when that we have ambiguities. When and this, Brown's example is a perfect ambiguity. Your client's deed says the east half of the southwest quarter, according to the government plat. You go out there and you measure off 
uh, the east half, according to the Governor Platt, which are going to end up with roughly 80 acres, and you jump over a fence in, in order to do that, uh, a, a long-established fence in order to do that. And you, you fail to recognize that that fence is enclosing another 80 acres. Somebody else's 80 acres. That's, that's a stop, look, and listen moment. That isn't a rush to drive in irons. Possibly the surveyor did need to be sued. But he didn't do the survey correctly. There are no unwritten rights here. All the rights are written. So what are you supposed to do? Well, when there's a, when there's a dispute, Brown asked the question, what are his obligations? The obligation is to do your job correctly. Um, so what... What uh, boundary location doctrine was in play uh, for uh, for Brown's sample case? It was a common grantor doctrine. The common grantor doctrine. But the common grantor didn't subdivide the southwest quarter uh, into uh, its uh, as as shown on the on the government plat. Where is it written that he has to? Where is it written that he has to? Let me just read you something right out of the manual. Where's it written that he has to? In the public land survey system, a corner is fixed and positioned by operation of law. Corners marked in official surveys followed by the use by use or fixed and positioned by monuments. Only a small portion of corners are marked on the ground in the original survey. They didn't subdivide the, the sections in the field. The government surveyors didn't. Subdivision of section corners are generally not marked. Their positions are fixed on a plat by protraction. They drew lines on a map. But then those positions are fixed on the ground by the survey process of running and marking the lines between the marked corners and setting monuments. And this, that was right out of uh, BLM manual, uh, section 3-99. Um, and oh, did you set up to... a show? No, I did not. Do you mind doing that right quick? Who's, who's supposed to do the subdivision of the sections? That's the work of the local surveyor, 3-132. And finally, the Bureau of Land Management assumes no control over the direction uh, or the acts of local and county surveyors in the manner of the subdivision of sections. Because the government has... Uh, the, the GLO plan in that first conveyance of the, of the, of the west half of the southwest corner... Uh, of Section 6, the, the government plat is uh, totally irrelevant. The government plat is totally irrelevant, and this this is what Brown, um, uh, he didn't see. He didn't see. Uh, there's more. Uh, download uh, his article. It's a good article. The, the, the bottom line here for Brown was uh, he was changing, in 1979, he was changing his thinking on this whole philosophy of stake the deed because this guy in, in Brown's mind staked the deed and was still wrong. So, um, uh, you know, my hat's off to, to Curtis Brown for, for being open-minded and uh, he was he was in the process of changing his mind. All right, uh, we'll pick up either with a guest next week or another topic um, and I appreciate you being here today. Have a great week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.